0: Store, send, receive, and exchange your and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android too. KQALIT is open source, and you always control your own keys. And by Sweetwater Digital Asset Consulting, connecting new money with old money since 2018. Cake Wallet and Sweetwater Digital are trusted and verified by the Monero community. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Andrew Balthazor, currently a judicial law clerk at the United States District Court for the Southern District in Florida and author of a legal research paper that applies the bona fide acquisition rule to cryptocurrency. The bona fide acquisition rule is a common law principle that originates from Roman law that allows an innocent purchaser to acquire certain types of stolen property free from the risk that the property may be claimed by the rightful owner. One such property that the rule applies to is cash. Primarily for the policy reason that in order for commerce to flow freely, innocent receivers of cash in a transaction should not be at risk of having someone claim ownership to the cash they received. Whereas with property like a painting, The rule would not apply and the innocent purchaser of a stolen painting would not be considered the rightful owner if it can be proven to have been stolen in this episode andrew discusses his analysis which focused on bitcoin and boils down to whether bitcoin should be considered cash like or rather should be considered more like property with traceable title ownership given its transparent ledger doug and andrew apply the same analysis to monero reasoning the bona fide acquisition rule would more clearly apply to Monero than Bitcoin, given Monero's cash-like fungibility. The ultimate deduction being, Monero acts better as money than Bitcoin. Monero talk starts now.
1: Andrew, thanks, man. Thanks for joining me. Of course. So I know this uh, may have was this kind of random to you that I that I reached out to you to co- to come on to this show. What was your yes it reaction? Was random.
2: Oh, well, plus. The nature of my paper doesn't really uh, suit like the topic of it doesn't really suit privacy coins, Uh, because it really discusses you know it's this particular legal principles application to um, cryptocurrencies that you can trace the transaction using a public publicly viewable blockchain. So
1: yes. So we might as well jump right into it, uh, just so I guess people know what we're talking about. I had—I I don't even know how I came across you. I was just having thoughts, and I was googling. Um, I may have even googled, you know, the 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 topic of your paper out of just sheer curiosity, uh, wondering how law currently handles, uh, you know, Bitcoin in terms of the bona fide acquisition rule. I I went to law school. I am an attorney. I don't really practice much. Uh, And so um, I found your paper very interesting. And what interests me most about it is that it potentially um, reveals in a a very clear way as to, you know, to the fact that that Bitcoin... uh, is not fungible, and and that because of that, um, this this property that normally or this rule that normally applies to money uh, may not apply to cryptocurrencies, and in particular Bitcoin, because of its lack of fungibility. So that that's why. Uh, I wanted to get you on how I see it related to the topic of privacy coins, but we'll get into that. But I think the first thing is to really, I guess, just explain what the paper really is and, you know, what the purpose of it is and what what essentially your findings were. And we'll, we'll kind of go take it from there. Okay.
2: So the paper discusses uh, a particular legal rule that applies to property. And ordinarily when... Uh, something is stolen from you, you can go um, get that property back from the thief. No question. But if that thief sells it to somebody, um, it becomes a little murkier. So depending on the context, sometimes you can go to the purchaser who bought it from the thief and acquire that property. Um, It depends on certain principles. One, does the buyer know that he's acquiring stolen goods? If he knows, then you can always recover your property from the from the, uh, the purchaser. But if he's an innocent purchaser and he doesn't know that what he's buying is stolen goods, then you still may be prevented uh, from recovering from them if certain rules apply. And generally we apply that rule to cash. Um, so if someone steals a pile of money, and a car and sells the pi- you know, sell, buys something from a, a third party, doesn't know it that the, th- that the thief is paying in cash. And now the, the innocent third party has a big pile of stolen cash and then he sells the stolen car to a third party. Now, under our legal principles will allow you to get the stolen car back from the innocent purchaser, even though he didn't know it was stolen because you can identify the specific vehicle using a a vin and a title registry that all states have that this set you know this vehicle belongs to you but the pile of cash even if you recorded all the serial numbers of the cash we wouldn't let you go recover that cash from the purchaser you have to go to the thief and you know do a lawsuit against the thief if you can identify him and if you can't you're out of luck so this principle is called the bona fide acquisition rule, which means that if an innocent purchaser acquires, uh, we call it a bona fide purchaser, someone who is not aware of the theft, the original theft. Um, if he acquires it, you can sometimes recover your stolen goods from him in certain situations and, and not in others. Uh, so, cash is a good example. If it's a unique piece of art, you will be able to recover it because it's something that you could point to and say this is mine because it's the only one of its kind so it must be mine or like i said a a vehicle that's titled um and has a registry or even a gun maybe if it's registered and there's a serial number that you can trace a bicycle but um something that's fungible like a bitcoin um that would be uh potentially recoverable. And that was the topic of the paper, exploring whether this rule applies to cryptocurrencies or not. Do we treat it like cash or do we treat it like something unique? So,
1: right. So let's back up because it's it's something, my, my understanding is that, you know, it it applies to to cash because cash is fungible, right? So it wouldn't be, you wouldn't easily be able to Unwind or uh, unmix the receiving. They even go back to, I think, ancient Roman times, right? Where they there, you know, uh, this this came up and uh, they talk about, you know, the mixing of, I guess, the, the coins that were received with the person's personal coins to the point where you wouldn't be able to untangle them and determine which coins were which. The idea being that because the coins are, are, Essentially fungible, that it wouldn't uh, make sense to um, allow the the property to be taken away from the bona fide purchase The property being the money in this instance, the coins, and going back to the what was potentially the rightful owner of the property because they they had the property first, and I guess it was stolen from them. And so fungibility actually plays into uh, how it's assessed, whether or not the bona fide actual acquisition rule applies to something, which makes sense. And then there's policy reasons as to why you'd want to apply that to money, because you wouldn't want to create a situation uh, where you're making it difficult for transactions to happen because every time somebody received money, they would de- then have to do the due diligence of trying to figure out whether or not the money was actually uh, stolen or not, right? right? Is that, I know I, I'm kind of, uh, you know, butchering it a little bit, but is that is that the essence of? Right, it, it started first um, in Roman
2: times in the principle that you just can't prove that one coin is yours and not another um the the maxim was money has no earmark so the actual full rule talks about how if you put your coins in a sack and sealed it with a special seal that identified the sack as yours then you could recover that if the sack was unopened because you could prove that's yours but if it's just coins mixed with some other pile of coins you can't prove that it's yours versus someone else's that eventually evolved when we started having paper currency that did have identifiable numbers, serial numbers. Um, courts applied uh, another principle, the, the idea that we want to reduce transaction costs to uh, encourage free flow of uh, the economic flow of, of resources, including currency. So the only way to do that is to, have, uh, to, to not force people To check some register for stolen currency, and every time that they purchase something, look at the serial numbers and cross reference it with maybe some master list of stolen serial numbers, which would be unwieldy. Um, That applied to paper currency, but the question of this paper was whether we should continue to apply it to certain cryptocurrencies where theoretically the blockchain does allow you to check for stolen, uh, you know, a source of stolen funds.
1: Exactly. So, And so this is obviously where it gets very interesting. And this was, you know, the, the essence of your paper trying to figure that out. So what would you say today, based on your analysis, do you think it should apply the bona fide acquisition rule? Should it apply to, let's say, Bitcoin? What's your kind of finding there?
2: So I concluded that although it's possible to trace uh if you had a listing of uh illegally obtained bitcoins like say we uh, we list all of the addresses that hacks go into um or fraudulent fraudulently obtained coins we kind of can trace where those coins go to sort to a certain extent using the blockchain but there really is no central clearinghouse for an end user to check whether their coins have come from one of these wallets it's pretty difficult um to do so i concluded although bitcoin might have the capability like you could maybe have a third party you know private software that does that for you um or you could maybe require it of certain like higher level entities that have more capabilities it's probably it's probably too too cumbersome right now uh and that the added transaction costs probably don't warrant uh not applying the, the bona fide acquisition rule to to Bitcoin. But I did discuss that if you wanted if you wanted to, you could it could be a feature of either Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies where someone could flag something as stolen and it would make it very difficult for that thief to use that currency, which might be, you know, a great positive in some circumstances. I mean, there's a lot of you know mechanics to work out for that. Um, easy to have to, like, make sure that you're not flagging a legitimate transaction as something illegal because that would be prone to abuse.
1: Right. And, and you know, this is this is all uh, very interesting because it's obviously it's happening in real time where we're seeing the development of this happening in, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with chain analytics companies. Uh, that are actively analyzing the Bitcoin blockchain, many of them funded uh, with millions of dollars, often by you know by the kind of the same people that are behind the 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 established banking industry. Um, and as you pointed out, there's a reason why, you know there there are arguments for why there's a positives to that, right?, uh, certainly uh, being able to track and trace potentially nefarious transactions. Um, you know, to uh, make sure things are going in accordance with the Bank Secrecy Act. And then for the purposes of just people being able to properly uh, track their own property and, uh, you know, use it as evidence as to whether or not something is has been stolen and is rightfully theirs. I mean, essentially, the Bitcoin blockchain does keep a record of, of type of ownership. So it's, it's actually, it's built into the technology itself. It's a ledger that's constantly keeping track of who owns what. So it's kind of the perfect invention, uh, for this purpose of using it in the instance where you need to prove ownership. Um, and I see you were saying, well, it may, it may require, uh, May add too much friction to transactions, but it does seem like we're headed in the direction where it could seamlessly be integrated into the technology of Bitcoin, where every transaction you could as- kind of, like you said, it, things can be flagged and you can kind of seamlessly make an assessment as to whether or not the Bitcoins you're receiving are, uh, you know, I guess clean or not, right? Well,
2: I think it would if that could be integrated you might have a cryptocurrency that would be less prone to nefarious uses potentially in the same way that cell phones in countries where uh, you can um, you can report a stolen cell phone and they will flag the the hardware mei number of that cell phone and prevent it from accessing the mobile network so if we could flag stolen cryptocurrency in the same way using the a publicly available blockchain, you would make any stolen uh, cryptocurrency completely useless to whatever thief took it. Um, but like I said, there's, that's prone to abuse. And so actually implementing a system like that, because I could just I could buy something, a legitimate transaction and then, you know, just flag it as illegitimate. So there has to be some you know controls in place. But there's a potential for some upside there. Um, it's just not available right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, and obviously, so that that would be controlled by you know some government and ent- you know government entities, right? Um, that would that would have that authority to essentially uh, taint uh, bitcoins and create that database. And we're already what? seeing that being done. Um, you know, the U.S. Treasury Department has you know blacklisted. Uh, various Bitcoin wallets associated with different groups. So we are, we're already seeing it done. Um, so it seems like we're only going to continue to move in that direction. Although it doesn't have to be a government uh, mandated process. Hmm.
2: Um, the diamond industry is an example of a privately run method of preventing um, trade in stolen diamonds. And that is that governments aren't involved in that. Instead, they use this Kimberly process, which is them all agreeing that we are gonna certify diamonds coming from certain locations. And this is what the certificates are gonna look like. This is who can issue them, so that we know from the source of the diamond that it's coming from not like a conflict region where we don't wanna trade with. And then a legitimate, a jeweler or you know retailer or wholesaler, is only gonna buy diamonds that have those certificates. Now there's people who are willing to deal in the illegitimate diamonds and, and there will always be some kind of black market like that, but they're difficult to trade. And, um, you know, there's consequences for getting caught and there's a government side to the enforcement of dealing in the illegal diamonds, but there's a the private side of that is all uh, sort of voluntary in order to, I think, raise the value of the legitimate diamonds that are mined and used so there's there's a there's a possible example there of a private you know public cooperation um and it's and i think the diamond industry did that to prevent government in you know infringing too much in their business so but that might be, might apply to the cryptocurrency exchanges too
1: yeah no that's that's a great example and actually i guess that's probably a more accurate as to what the the likely direction of things. Um, So what, what, once again, what interests me most about this is I'm constantly looking at cryptocurrency, and trying to determine which one is doing digital cash the best, right. So that that's kind of been my, uh, you know, motivation in this space. That's what I'm most interested in. That's what I think the most the the, the true value proposition of cryptocurrency is that's that's what I think the most disruptive aspect of it is is the one that can do digital cash or digital gold the best and so I started off as a Bitcoin maximalist uh, you know went down that rabbit hole but I realized you know that Bitcoin isn't fungible because of these reasons we're talking about it's built on a transparent ledger you can basically track and trace transactions and because of that you could effectively taint wallets or taint coins and that's what led me to monero which is essentially resistant to this it's you know also blockchain technology also has a ledger but it implements you know other uh, tech that essentially obfuscates all the transactions. so you can't see who's sending, what to whom. Um, and so just curious, based on your research, do you think Bitcoin essentially doesn't work well as money because of this because it, because of its nature to be tracked and traced when we look at, you know, based on, you know, there was things that stuck out in that paper that, you know, that, you know, made a kind of alarm bells go off for me. You know, when you talk about the fungibility of it, when you talk about, uh, you know, how they uh, ass- assessed cash historically, and basically said for the need of, you know, allowing the free flow of commerce that they're not going to, you know, that the bona fide acquisition r- rule uh, will apply. Do you have any opinion there as to what that means for defining Bitcoin as money?
2: Well, I think it 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 certainly raises concerns if it's I mean, it's a it's a medium of exchange, but it's not necessarily fungible. So does that make it not money? Uh, People treat it like money. um, But I think you raise some interesting points that it's. The lack of, the lack of privacy between uh, you know, of a th- of a third party. I understand with Monero you can uh, use a view key to enable a- at your you know if you want you can enable a third party to look at the transactions for a particular address. Is that is that right? Correct. Right. So um, unless you give that out, no one can can tell where your where your transactions are going, which is largely what you have when you receive cash right like a traditional fiat cash if you receive a hundred dollars you have no idea where that came from uh, without some kind of other independent information so in that sense bitcoin is not like money because it it retains it has memory everything that you transact with bitcoin or a lot of other publicly available uh, blockchain based currencies they you can tell where that stuff came from which requires people to bend over backwards to try to hide what they're doing by using like, you know, one use only uh, uh, digital addresses or tumblers or services that um, let you trade without know your customer uh, uh, regulations involved. And, and governments are locking, you know, locking down on some of those avenues. So, um, so I think there are some problems with, with that. I mean, there's advantages as we discussed,
1: but- yeah there there's it's it, it seems like you know that's becoming the value proposition of Bitcoin so it's really not digital cash not digital gold right because when I give you a piece of gold there's no question as to where the, what is the history attached to this piece of gold you have no way of assessing that so you just take that piece of gold and there's no Uh, due diligence that's then required to go try to figure out if that gold came from somewhere nefarious, because it would essentially be impossible to do so. With Bitcoin, it's quite easy to do that research because it's built into the technology. So Bitcoin really isn't acting as digital gold or digital cash. It's acting at as this other new type of property, that's great for owning, Uh, people are currently storing their value in it. And I guess the fact that you easily can track and trace, maybe even adds to that, uh, you know, ability to store value in it, because if it were to be stolen, you can use the blockchain to help track and trace and determine the rightful owner which sounds great in theory. And I think there are a lot of reasons why I guess that that is good. But ultimately, if you're trying to create digital cash, it's not gonna work for those purposes.
0: And there's a number of reasons
2: why you wouldn't want publicly available transactions. And although, although it might help with like enforcement of anti-money laundering, I you know your customer regulations and you know preventing funding of terrorists or helping black market, crimes of various sorts um, or tracing thefts so that you can get your property back. Um, it's bad from the perspective that your competitors can see you know, what kind of business dealings you're doing. People who maybe wanna hurt you could see what you're spending your money on once they identify which addresses are associated with you and your spending habits. Uh, and that's, that's not something that people really want out there all that much. Um, so, There might be a benefit to cryptocurrencies where you can view the the transactions publicly when you want, would you affirmatively want that information out there? Like, for example, I could see it in, um, in equity dealings where you want to, um, use digital assets as collateral and prove to. Uh, a third party that you're not moving that asset. That this asset's going to stay there and act as security for some other, you know, purpose. In which case they know. But as we discussed with Monero, you could do that by giving them the view key for that address. So I'm not sure that that necessarily is you know, is required to have everybody, you know, view it. It might be good in instances where, I guess. Um, you have positions of public trust, so like politicians who are in office, having them and their investments, like if they have a, a blind trust set up, um, or don't have a blind trust set up, or just have assets out there, and you want to you want to give your constituents or you know political parties the confidence that you are. Uh, not investing for your own interest, you know, aligning with your legislative votes, but you're just investing blindly as you should, then you could leave that information publicly for people. But most private citizens don't need that.
1: Makes a lot of sense to me. I'm constantly struggling, uh, you know, having this debate with the with the Bitcoin community, especially there, there are some that, or most actually that also, know consider themselves libertarians some even consider themselves anarchists and they see bitcoin as this you know grand savior and the thing that's going to uh essentially take power away from the state and give more power to individuals but you know i'm concerned that because of bitcoin's traceability that it won't necessarily have that effect, because you'll be able to see everyone's transactions. And as you can imagine, that could lead to things like, you know, uh, mass surveillance, and knowing how, you know, what people are doing with their money. Uh, and, you know, doing, you know, it could lead to, uh, you know, worst case scenarios, uh, tyrannies, right, where uh, people with enough power, or that are in power, Uh, can essentially use their ability to analyze and track and trace the Bitcoin blockchain, and if everybody's using it, to basically watch certain individuals and mark people if they make certain types of transactions, donate to certain political causes, whatever it may be. And that's my ultimate concern or argument as to why we may want to be wary of Bitcoin and, you know, think about something more along the lines of Monero where the, the base layer isn't transparent, but it's obfuscated.
2: The worst case I think is if governments start to realize just how much information is available and they realize how to mine it efficiently, they might mandate that people use transactions like this. And prevent traditional, um, you know, fiat currency and um, and private coin, you know, use, which would be concerning.
1: <laughs> right. And, and the, the, almost, the, the most tragic part of it is the people who are leading the charge into this are those that are claiming to be the most concerned about our liberties and saying we need to all port over to, to Bitcoin. Because it's going to, you know, give us more liberty uh, from the powers that be. Meanwhile, we're potentially all opting into a tool that can be kind of the perfect tool for surveilling everyone's transactions. It would be like if the government um,
2: required everyone to use Facebook and use Facebook to update their status religiously, their relationships, their friendless... Um, with daily updates, that is not a world that I think most people would want to live in.
1: Exactly. So, what what led you to uh, to to write this paper? What is you know? Let's let's talk about that a little. I know we jumped right into the topic, but let's talk about a little bit how how you even got here. What why did you do write, write this paper? So, I started
2: um, I started working at a big law firm, uh, and it's it's started in Florida, but it's now international. It's called Holland and Knight. And uh, when I first got there, day one of orientation, I heard some of the partners talking about how one of the partners had gotten assigned to be uh, involved in an SEC action against a, um, a crypto Ponzi scheme, essentially. And these, this company had raised money to try to put out a product that it really wasn't capable of putting out and maybe never intended to put out and it raised over $20 million in Ether, in Ethereum. And um, the SEC found out about it, and then after they started getting investigated, all the money went missing, and they said it was a hack. And uh, it actually turned out, it looked like it probably was stolen from them by somebody. Um, So we came in at the point of the SEC starting to investigate, The court had appointed us as the receiver um, for the company and it was our job to try to marshal the assets the virtual assets in this case which we had some remaining but we had to try to i was given the task uh as a brand new associate trying to track down the about 21 million in ether that had been stolen and uh i used the public blockchain to do that the public ethereum blockchain um And we were able to track at least part of it down to an exchange in Hong Kong. And at that Hong Kong exchange, uh, they cooperated with us. They froze the, uh, the accounts that they could identify with where funds were still there at the time that we, um, had made the inquiry and gave us, they had some know your customer information for those accounts. So we were able able to identify the person who was at least in receipt of the stolen ether. Now, that's a far cry from saying that he was the person who did the hack. He may have just been an innocent purchaser, which started me thinking about this rule and whether it applied to him and whether even if he wasn't involved, whether we could recover. Uh, Hong Kong uses British law, um, which is uh, the same law that we're derived from here in the United States, common law, uh, All originates from basically England. So um, it was more of a thought of experiment, although we did hire some Hong Kong attorneys to prosecute the case. And since that time, I've taken a hiatus, I'm working for a judge, so I don't actually know how that Hong Kong action has turned out. But uh, I tend to when I go back, I want to be get get back involved with that some of that work.
1: Very interesting. So do you think the bona fide acquisition rule would then Clearly apply to Monero because we're saying it's more like cash in that you know it, it is fungible; it can't be tracked and traced. Yes, I think the key thing that would that would make it difficult is the higher um,
2: is the inability to, to trace back to a source of illegitimate funding. So there's no way as an innocent purchaser. Even if you were doing due, due diligence, there's no way for you to verify. And even if you insisted that the that the person selling you the stolen currency, like insist that they give you the, the their view key so you can see where their funds came from, that only gives you one layer of information. You wouldn't know where that person got their funds from. So it might be stolen three or four or five links down the chain or farther, and you can only tell one hop. So, I don't think that we could we could say Monero would be treated like some unique property. I think we'd have to treat it like more like cash, and you wouldn't be able to recover under that rule from an innocent purchaser. You have to find either the thief who took it or you know some other mechanism to get your your assets back.
1: interesting. and so have you um, been? Studying cryptocurrency since this, or was that just something you you dabbled in because of you know being at the firm at that time? And well, our firm has like
2: most big firms, they've got a little um, virtual asset and blockchain practice. So the the lead for our firm is based here in Miami, where where I live. And when I go back, I'll be doing some more work with him. And when I when I was there. He had taken on another case um, to help the SEC with distribution of assets for the Veritasium uh, coin, which was another one of these quasi Ponzi scheme um, ICOs. And that was, I think, 8 million or so in assets. So they had seized that. Most what he had done was he hadn't, had his assets stolen. So he had about 8 million and a lot of it, he had either uh, converted into Bitcoin or purchased um, like gold and silver and some other like actual, you know, resources with his, with his money. And what the ACC wanted us to do was find a way to identify the claimants who had been damaged by the fraud. And then get money back to them, which presented us with a challenge on a public blockchain, because if you say, okay, everyone who has been who purchased Veritasium coins is a potential claimant because they have purchased uh, thinking that they were buying something for value when really it was a fraud. They've all been damaged. We want to get some money back to them. You can look on the blockchain and see everyone who was issued a Veritasium coin, because it's based on the Ether blockchain, which is publicly viewable. That presents a really uh, unique problem in this sort of uh, context, because uh, anyone could go and file a claim based on being a you know I am I can just claim that I am the owner of address X Y Z that received this you know thousands of coins of Veritasium and I'm, I'm owed it. So how do we differentiate different owners, like the legitimate from potential fraudsters? I was envisioning my nightmare scenario was someone running a script using the blockchain's information as a data and just like automatically filing their claims through our online claim portal and saying, I am owed all this money because I am the owner of all these different cryptocurrency addresses that received Veritasium. Um, so what we ended up doing was creating a unique token that we could send to each address. And it was a it was an ERC20 token, which had a made them each non-fungible, you know, unique identifier. And then the person claiming to be the owner of that address would have to send it back to us with no intervening steps. And that would prove that they owned the address, had control over it. And then we would give them their money. In the form of ether or sometimes fiat currency, depending on the person, and that claims process is actually still ongoing right now.
1: Oh wow! And you helped develop? You help develop that? So you also have a computer science background as well? Oh, I didn't do any of the actual programming. It's been okay. years. I have a computer science degree, but it's been years since I've actually
2: dabbled with computer programming. So uh, that was other people, but I kind of came up with the the formula for what we do, like the different steps, and we discussed between the the partners at Holland and Knight and, you know, the the other associates involved, but I ended up drafting the claims process and the distribution, you know, methodology for that.
1: Mm. So are you, are you personally, obviously you're interested in cryptocurrency, right? You're, you're not just, this isn't just a, you know, a, a day job thing. I assume you're, you're personally interested in it as well.
2: Yeah. I'm personally interested in it. It's not going
1: away. And I think
2: it's, it's, I have enough of a computer science background to understand, some of it i mean i'm not going to be out there creating smart contracts or anything not yet anyway Um, but i understand enough to know the risks involved and how to advise people Um, so i think it's a perfect time right now to get involved in this space as a lawyer Uh, there's not enough people who really can read a paper and understand what they're reading and too many people using um, buzzwords to sell their services without really understanding what those mean
1: Definitely. Definitely. So what what is your assessment of of the space of cryptocurrency, I guess, of, of Bitcoin? Um, what do you think of the technology? What do you think it's its purposes? I would just lo- I'd love to hear your kind of your, your thoughts. So I think it's
2: interesting. But one of my concerns is that um, although there's there's a low cost to the user for transactions, um, at least for the Bitcoin network, there is an incredible economic cost that's you know is absorbed in other ways, but it still exists per transaction. It's decentralized and it's borne by other parties. But the, I am a little concerned. I haven't. What I would want to do is compare the economic costs per transaction of Bitcoin with with other forms of currency.
1: You're referring to proof of work, I assume, like the mining. Well, and-
2: yes, that's. I'm a little concerned about that because that's, it doesn't seem sustainable to me. I haven't studied this, but that is a concern I have. And if it's not sustainable, then we're going to end up abandoning it. Or it's going to have to be streamlined in some significant way. So, um, that that's probably my chief concern right now. I think that there's a future with this sort of technology, but it may not be
1: in the exact form
2: that it is now.
1: So and how about you know so the the people in bitcoin that are most passionate about it talk about it as digital gold what's your opinion on that on its on crypto's use case as as digital gold or digital cash
2: i personally don't have anything invested in bitcoin um i, I have invested in some of the underlying like um manufacturers and resources that bitcoin mining relies on and other cryptocurrencies but i'm not convinced that bitcoin has has long-term longevity i i have some i have some concerns about it it seems it it's it's essentially like a first draft of a digital currency and it's been cobbled together um it has a finite supply which is not Good from an economic perspective, I understand why the computer scientists who designed it, did it that way. But I'm convinced that that computer scientist, whoever actually was probably wasn't an economic uh, economist. So um, I think someone who I think we need economists involved if we're going to design a currency so that it has like all the fun, the the features that we want. Um, Bitcoin doesn't
1: have that. Bitcoiners are, are screaming at you right now as you say sorry. these things. Um, so M- Monero has a tail emission. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So it, it doesn't have a cap supply. Monero um, is forever mine. There's, you know, it, the, the supply curve is known and can't be changed, um, but it's forever emitting coins. It, it reaches a, a nominal cap of about 18 0.4 million coins. And then thereafter, there's a small amount of coins that are forever released. And for numerous reasons, one is uh, essentially to ensure that there's always an incentive for miners to mine. Uh, whereas in Bitcoin, the theory is that miner, the incentive to mine will be from the transaction fees that are received no longer from the block reward, since the block reward will eventually approach, you know, become zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also because Monero has a dynamic block size. So I don't know if you're, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're slightly familiar with that. The, you know, the block size of Bitcoin and there was whole, the whole block size uh, war that happened. So in Monero, the block size is dynamic. So as, uh, usage grows, more transactions can be put into blocks and the blocks dynamically get larger. Uh, and for technical reasons, you essentially need coins to always be emitted for, for that dynamic block size uh, to, to work out on a game theory level so that uh, essentially miners don't have the incentive to just, you know, uh, put in super large blocks but they can get; they'll get penalized for that. That's written to the algorithm as well, and so that penalty comes from taking uh, away from uh, the tail emission emitted coins. So they would get, you know, less coins. Um, so yeah, but you know, to, to your point, uh, you know, I do think there there might be some concerns there with the fact that Bitcoin is capped at twenty one million uh, for economic reasons. And I think, too, for ensuring the stability of the network in the future, like I said, right now, it's kind of an unknown. We don't really know what the ins- whether or not there'll be enough incentive to mine in the future when the block reward goes to zero, especially given that most Bit- Bitcoiners will tell you uh, that transactions are all going to move to the second layer. Uh, they'll no longer be, you know, only they won't really be taking place on... Um, the protocol layer, but they'll be taking place on the second layer. So if that's the case, then why would there be that in you know, uh, incentive to continue to mine if transactions are moving to that second layer? Right? Um, have you are, are you studying lots of different various coins? So obviously, you knew a thing or two about Monero? How is it that you came across Monero? Was it just because you were coming on the show? Or had you already? Well, I had read a little bit about it when I was First task to try to trace
2: uh, Ether transactions because I had to learn the basics of that. But um, and I knew that Monero had particular difficulties in, in transaction tracing because as my paper had to deal with what happens if you trace them, I had to discuss it a little bit. Um, but I did read a little bit more about Monero in preparation for this. Um, I didn't. I did not know that the view key is, uh, existed, which I thought was interesting because what that would have let you do is comply with any money laundering and you know your customer like requirements for changes. If that became a thing, um, it would mitigate, I think, uh, against the risk of illicit use. And I think is a good argument for why governments shouldn't necessarily ban it outright as long as, um, the exchanges or banks require users to give, you know, a certain amount of information to them so that they can confirm that the source of funds is legitimate. So I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I think Monero in many ways, and because ViewKey being one of the things that allows it to do it, it, it really mimics cash more so than any than any other crypto. So just like going and taking, you know, if you take ten thousand dollars out at the bank in cash they knew you took the $10,000 out. So similar to, you know, moving Monero off of a KYC AML exchange, you know, you, you, you take your $10,000 worth of Monero off a Kraken. Uh, But then after that point, you're no longer, the bank no longer knows what you're doing with that money. Whereas with most other cryptos and Bitcoin in particular, you're then can be tracked and traced thereafter.
0: Um,
1: But like with, you know, the traditional dollar, you know, if if a, you know, uh, a warrant is put out against you or whatever it may be, you can be asked questions. And I guess you could theoretically be asked to show your view key. So it's more of, uh, instead of the default being that the government is just tracking and tracing and knows everything they have to actually ask you for permission which seems to be more aligned with the laws that this country is built upon for the purposes of protecting our our freedoms and our liberties sure agreed yeah do you um so what what is your your take on the potential banning of cryptocurrencies Banning of uh Bitcoin or Monero? I mean, it seems more likely that they would be maybe more concerned with Monero than Bitcoin. I think so. Um,
2: but I read, you know, I read a white paper by a law firm uh, and it was it was making a pretty good case for why even the most private of privacy coins um have mechanisms that would let you comply with the current state of anti money laundering requirements, similar to cash. I mean, if you, if you have a large amount of cash, you essentially just tell the bank where you got, it, which you can do with Monero and you can do it a little more authentically. You can say, look, this is the source of it. This trend, I received it from this address. I mean, it doesn't really tell the bank a whole lot, but you can comply with the regulation and give them the information they want. Um, with the blockchain, they can get a whole lot more um so i could see governments wanting to only only use the more public cryptocurrencies because of the additional information but i think the argument should be that monero is just as good as cash and if we're still letting cash be used then why not other privacy coins um i don't know if Western democracies are going to be all about banning a lot of that. I could see the uh, more maybe tyrannical countries wanting to have their own in-house currency where they can like control the code and have maybe more information embedded in it, and they might they might even have some of the outward features of privacy coins, but with a backdoor letting the government you know view as much information as they want.
1: So I guess we'll see. All right. Do you have any thoughts on taxes? So, you know, that's obviously something that comes up. Uh, You know, the governments may be concerned that something like Monero can be used to evade taxes. Whereas, I guess, with with Bitcoin, it would be more difficult to use it for those purposes. Well, cash, I mean, if you use a lot of cash, it can be used to evade taxes. So
2: uh i think they just have to implement the same controls they do and which is identifying you know large dollar transactions uh, making people report you know the source of funds and if it's income then the bank you know should be reporting that uh but i don't know if it blockchain i i think if there's a public ledger based Cryptocurrency, it certainly makes it easier to identify where you're possibly taxable, but there's so many other factors at play at whether you owe taxes or not. Um, So I think at the point of an audit, you're gonna have to give up your view key if you're a Monero user and show, you know, where you got your money from, um, which uh, they may not have to do if if it's Bitcoin because they can just look at it. But even then, I mean, you'll have, at, at worst, Bitcoin is going to trace back to some digital address. And is the IRS going to know what digital address that is, like who, belong, who, who that belongs to or why you got that money? So I don't see the IRS like necessarily blanket banning anything. But they're going to be a little more savvy at uh, knowing what to ask for as they deal more with this. Mm hmm
1: all right great great insights thank you andrew thank you so much thanks for having me Doug. i'm really glad i came across your paper through some random googling <laughs> uh, i encourage anybody watching this to read it we'll we'll post it in the show notes to go check it out is there uh, anywhere else people can like find you and follow you and see what else you're working on i'm on i'm on linkedin and when i i am
2: returning to my firm in june uh so I anticipate being involved. The, uh, the crypto guys are really eager to get me back to work. So um, hopefully we're gonna you know, put out some more exciting things. As far as I know, our distribution of cryptocurrency back to victims of these ICO frauds, especially in kind, because we're trying to give it back in ether or in Bitcoin uh, based on what you invested. Um, I think it's, it's one of the first in the world uh, attempts to do that. So it'd be interesting so, to see how, how it pans
1: out. Good luck with that. And, thanks. uh, you know, please, please stop by the Monero community. Come, you know, come visit the Reddit. Uh, we'd love I'm sure people would love to, uh, chat with you more regarding the, these topics. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate Bye. it.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Monero Talk podcast. Go to monerotalk.live slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them.